This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Wow, I just lost my computer screen. That's not a good omen. <laughs> All right, how are you? Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, we are uh, just moments away from our dear friend, R. Gary Patterson, uh, who will join us, the Fox Mulder of rock and roll. Always look forward to a visit uh, to the Conspiracy Show from, uh, from Gary. He always comes equipped with uh, amazing stories uh, from his... Well... Three volumes, anyway, that he's written and, and sort of covered off this whole genre. Uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, uh, Hellhounds on Their Trail, and The Walrus Was Paul. And uh, really details quite nicely all of the... It's a compendium of um, strange coincidences and hoaxes and unsolved uh, murders and um, just some of the strange goings-on in rock and roll. And, of course, Gary will be joining us for an exclusive live event on Saturday, October the 15th here in Toronto at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. And I'll tell you uh, more about that in just a few moments. Uh, last week on the program, we, uh, we had a, a special tribute to the late broadcaster Errol Bruce Knapp, who was a, a fixture here on Late Night Radio in the greater Toronto area, the host of Strange Days Indeed, uh, past... Uh, not too long ago, and Victor Vigiani joined me in studio, of course, and we had a few guests on the phone to say goodbye to uh, Errol. Uh, and uh, it saddens me to announce we've, we've lost another UFO researcher, uh, Bob Mitchell, uh, who was just on the program uh, earlier this summer, I think in June, wasn't it, Albert, back in June, uh, just before the big uh, UFO ET conference in Brantford. And uh, also Bob had, uh, was, a, was a regular on Coast to Coast. I interviewed him recently on Coast. And he had just published a, a brand new uh, book uh, along with Jason Quitt. It just came out uh, at the end of August. And uh, uh, Bob had sent out an email. I was on the list. 
He announced uh, on August the 25th uh, that he was battling cancer and uh, passed away this week after uh, a brief battle with a horrible, horrible disease. So uh, my my prayers and sincere condolences go out to uh, Bob's friends and his family. Eternal be his memory. All right. Albert Vinzel is uh, here, our story producer and remote viewer in training. Oh, on the other side of the glass, Will Power, young Will Power, is uh, twisting the, nile, the uh, dials and the knobs, and um, uh, Ian, uh, Ian Robertson is off tonight gigging somewhere, I'm sure. Now, I'm, Albert is running our Hangout on Air, our HOA, so if you want to stream this radio program live on YouTube, it's real simple. Just go to my Twitter feed my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, and go to the top of the feed or near the top, and just click on the link with the HOA in it. It's an HOA link. Just click on it, and you're in. You're watching TV on the radio, or you're watching radio on YouTube. (laughs) Presto! Wonderful. Uh, Now, I mentioned uh, Albert our remote viewer in training, and we're going to start a new segment this week. I kind of teased it last week, uh, but it's, uh, it's called What's in the Box? Now, as I mentioned, Albert is a, uh, a student of remote viewing. He's uh, trying to fine-tune his skills, and a couple of months ago we had uh, the man with X-ray eyes, Douglas James Cottrell, on the program, and we did a little experiment. So I thought, why don't we try this every week or so? And uh, for those joining us on the HOA, you can see the uh, the box. I'll get a nicer box next time. I had a nice wooden cigar box all ready to bring with me, and I completely forgot it. But this will have to do. So, Elbert, you don't have to tell me right now. Just, uh, okay, people can see the box. Let me put you on mic there, Elbert. Okay, turn, it, turn the camera around so people can see you as well. All right, there's Albert. Say hello. Now, just spend a few moments. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to tell me something now, or do you want me to come back to you later? Uh, I can try now. Maybe it's, it will just get the guesses out of the way. But I wrote down half hour before the show: mirror, reflective, and old pair of glasses. So I don't know if I'm even close. Or <laughs> think about it some more. All right, think about all it right. some more. Albert Vinzel, our remote viewer. All right. Let's uh, get to it. As I say, I always look forward to uh, our Gary Patterson's return to the program. He's a native Tennessean with a passion uh, for rock and roll. He's a published author with Simon & Schuster, and his works portray many fascinating, fascinating events that helped shape musical history, from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll uh, standing legends. In 1996, he released his first book entitled The Walrus Was Paul. Immediately, the book became highly sought after. A Beetlefest catalog pro- proclaimed The Walrus Was Paul as one of its best-selling titles of the year. And uh, due to the instant success of the book, uh, Gary found himself as a highly sought-after radio personality. He appeared at, on all the syndicated Beatle radio shows, including Westwood One's The Beatle Years, ABC Radio's Beatle Archives, Uh, the Breakfast with the Beatles programs from New York to L.A. And um, he has appeared on numerous national Beatle conventions, including Beatle Fests in New York, Chicago, uh, Orlando, on and on it goes. And, of course, Hellhounds on Their Trail followed that uh, success, uh, which was followed up by Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Gary, welcome once again, my friend. How are you? 
I'm doing great. How are you, Richard? Just terrific. Thank you. And, of course, we are very, very excited. Uh, Hello. Uh, uh, yes, can you hear me? Did we lose Gary? Well, I told you when the screen went down, uh, that, was, that was not a good sign. Okay, uh, if you wouldn't mind, young willpower, just uh, calling Gary back. Call him back on that landline number if you can. All right. So uh, let's go back to our remote viewer friend, Albert Finzel. Any more ideas, uh, Albert? What's in the box? Let's let people see the box again. And uh, you did not look inside the box, correct? No, no, I didn't. No. It's yeah, it's a lot easier when Douglas is here because he can talk you through it. But it, usually, you just want that relaxed state. And if you get it in the internal board, then then you know you're 100 percent right. You just have a feeling of being sure. But the, until you're there, you're really just guessing in the beginning. All right, so you so. want to get out what they call AAOL in remote viewing, the analytic overlay. Once you get, get that out of the way you can, and you're in the zone, then you can get it 100%. So did you get the analytic overlay out of the way? <laughs> I think that's what we did in the first, <laughs> in, the, in the opening. But I'm going to need a little bit more time still. You need more time? Yeah. All right. Yeah, because you were thinking that it might be a pair of glasses or something shiny or reflective. Can yeah. I just tell you, will it help if I tell you that you're way off base? It's way off? It's way off base, my friend. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we are waiting. Uh, do we have Gary back? We're still waiting to get Gary Patterson back. Uh, you're waving your hand, Will, but I don't know what that means. Do we have him? Just give me a shake or a nod. We don't have Gary back. All right. Uh, let me just spend a few moments then just reminding you. So, again, the live event is Saturday, October the 15th. That's fast approaching. It's from 4 to 8 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. And uh, Gary Patterson, of course, will be there. And then special Skype appearances from Peggy Sue Guerin, who was, who was, of course, the inspiration for Buddy Holly and the Cricket's two smash hits, Peggy Sue and Peggy Sue Got Married. And also Leo Lyons. Uh, Leo, Lyon, Leo Lyons, the, um, the bass player from... The uh, the great band Ten Years After, of course, they were a huge. They really stole the show at Woodstock. Leo Lyons from Ten Years After, and then Bill Harry, uh, Bill Harry, lifelong friend uh, to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. All of the Beatles attended art school with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and uh, was the publisher of Mercy Beat magazine. So they'll all be joining us uh, by Skype. Gary Patterson live on stage again Saturday, October the fifteenth at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. And if you want uh, more information or order or to purchase tickets, just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. That's my, uh, my website. And go to the live events page. And voila, you're in. All right, we're still waiting on Gary. I'm not sure what the problem is, but uh, I'm going to come back to my remote viewer. Now I'm going to put you on the, on the spot here, Albert. I need you to try and focus. What's in the box? Let's get one more shot of the, uh, the box for the people on the, uh, the HOA. Uh, okay. uh, He's thinking hard, folks. He's thinking hard. Use those remote viewing skills, Albert. What's in the box? He's deep in thought. He's very deep in thought. What's coming through? Still, just give just, me impressions. Just, just, just give me impressions. Okay, let's see. Color, surface, texture. Okay. 
Come on now, Albert. Is it, see, I don't want to guess unless I don't have it right. And you, you got to go down to that sort of deep, deeper level where it's, you're in a relaxed state. I know, this is not easy. Just no pressure, but there are literally dozens of people watching on YouTube. No pressure. Okay, we're going to run out of time here, Albert. I need you to come up with something. Still, it's just, just You're not fine. getting anything? No, not, not, not on this one. <laughs> All right. Do we have Gary? We have Gary. All right. Let's join Gary. We'll come back to you, Albert. Not okay. to worry. Gary Patterson, welcome, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. For a minute, I thought I was in the box. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're in the box. Uh, you know what? Uh, this is kind of interesting. We're, we're just uh, about to come up on a break here, but let me very quickly again welcome you to the show. I just mentioned the, uh, the big event uh, coming up on the, uh, the 15th of October, but I wanted to start off talking to you about, you know, where a lot of sort of the launching pad for all of this talk about coincidences and curses and myths, and it really begins in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads, the Devil's Crossroads. And uh, you've been down there. Uh, we'll yes, talk. We'll talk about that in a moment. But isn't it interesting that that was the first thing we were going to talk about? And what happens? My computer literally went kaflui, and then we get you on the phone, and you're knocked out as well. Because <laughs> I'm in the box. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you have had some very strange experiences uh, at the crossroads. But first, before you talk about that, just give us. We've only got about a minute here before we head into the break. Tell us about the connection. Uh, between the Devil's Crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and the great legendary blues man Robert Johnson. Well, you know, when the blues really started, it was a competition between God's music and the devil's music. All right, you worked in the fields, you did awful lot of hard labor, you had a good time on Fridays and Saturday nights, and then you went to church on Sunday. So there was a rumor and a legend that a blues man, if he really wanted to be good, he could take his guitar and he could go to the crossroads and he could sit there and play his guitar at night around midnight. And then finally, a figure would walk up behind him. You dare not turn and look because you know who it is. It was the devil or in voodoo, Legba. And you would pass your guitar over your shoulder to this entity. You would hear him tune it to a very special tuning and when he passed it over your shoulder back to you and you accepted it, well, you'd made your deal. You would get fame, but you would have a short life. And Robert Johnson, uh, the legend has it, as we head into the break, couldn't play a lick, couldn't play a lick until he went down to the crossroads. We'll find out what happened when we are back, along with our Gary Patterson. Take a walk on the dark side right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for hanging out. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. I think we've got the show back on the rails after a bit of a bumpy start, some technical snafus, and it may have something to do with the fact that we are talking about the Devil's Crossroads uh, down in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Our Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of Rock, is on the line. Before I get back to uh, Gary, just uh, I'm going to check in very quickly with Albert, our remote viewer friend. What's in the box, Albert? I'm still drawing a blank on this one. I, I don't want to guess at it unless All right. I know for sure. All right, my friend. Bottom of the hour, though. That's the deadline, okay? Get those right. remote viewing skills going. All right. So, uh, Gary, we were, uh, first of all, let me remind people, you'll be coming to town, Toronto, October the 15th. That's a Saturday at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium to share all of these wonderful stories from rock. Uh, take a take a walk on the dark side. Now, we were talking about uh, Robert Johnson. He goes down to the Devil's Crossroads in Clarksdale. Is it true that, uh, or at least this is the legend, that he couldn't play a lick one day and then literally overnight he was like this master bluesman? Is that apocryphal or is there some truth to that? It's actually truthful. Wow. He used to play just the harmonica, the blues harp, and he was bad on that, but it was even worse on guitar. And when the old Delta musicians like Charlie Patton, Sunhouse, and the others, when they saw Robert Johnson coming carrying his guitar, they would avoid him because he was so bad. But he disappeared looking for his father and made his way into Memphis, Tennessee. And he was gone for maybe up to six weeks. But when he returned, he was incredible. He could do things on the guitar that none of the other guys could do, and he claimed that he was taught to play the guitar in graveyards at night by Satan himself. So that sort of gave the mystique. Another thing about Johnson is he had a cataract in one of his eyes, and when he played the guitar, he would glance up, and when the light hit it just the right way, his eye would glow. And people were convinced it was the devil's eye. Wow. <laughs> and when it came turn to play some of his signature licks, which was the Robert Johnson turnaround that we refer to it today as guitar players, he would turn his back to the audience so they couldn't see what he was doing. And they thought it was the secret tuning that the devil had given him that night, when actually he was just turned his back so nobody could steal his licks. But, <laughs> All right. You know, if you got to imagine that there's somebody who'd sold his soul to the devil playing at a juke joint next to you, you would be, well, it'd be interesting to go see him. Same thing with Marilyn Manson and everybody else now. They, everybody goes to certain concerts just because they want to see what might happen. And Robert Johnson, you know, he, uh, he did the juke joints. And it was just an interesting way to do that. But the answer to your question is, yeah, he was terrible, and he got really good very quickly. And the Sunhouse said he sold his soul to play like that. And, of course, that song has been, uh, or that, that uh, location, The Crossroads, in uh, Clarksdale, has been immortalized in song. Uh, Eric Clapton, uh, just a who's who of, you know, great artists have performed oh, yeah. it. Now, you, uh, you told me many years ago that you made the pilgrimage down to the crossroads, and uh, you went with a couple of friends. And the idea, I guess, you were, you were going to collect a little vial of the, uh, the dirt from the roads, <laughs> from the road there, the crossroads. Well, actually, actually, that wasn't even a thought at the time. I had gone down to visit several of my fraternity brothers from the past, and we got together. Everybody had their wives and their girlfriends, and 
So Alan, who we stayed at his home in, in Jackson, Tennessee, right outside Memphis, he said, tomorrow morning we're going to get up and we're going to go to the crossroads in Clarksdale. And, of course, no one knew what that meant. So I had to explain the story as we drove down. And when we got to the location, there was an old cemetery across from it. And the cemetery was built in 1850. So that had to be the cemetery that Robert Johnson learned to play the guitar in at night. So we all went into the cemetery after hearing the story, and we all posed with a crossroads over our shoulder. And we took about, oh, 10 shots with a camera. And a lot of this was digital, but none of the pictures came out. Hmm. That was kind of odd. I'll say. And as we were walking through the cemetery, there was this huge black snake that had coiled around one of the tombstones. And one of the guy's wives took a stick and she started beating that snake with it. Oh, that's smart. No, not in a cemetery. (laughs) But I told her, I said, you know, no, no. I said, you know, you need to stop this. I said, think about snakes. You know, think about the, you know, Garden of Eden. Think about the Robert Johnson myth. And I said, and we're also here in March and in the south and Mississippi Delta. You know, snakes, they don't come out this early. You know, I was just trying to give her a bit of focus there. So she threw down the stick, the snake cooled and crawled away into the underbrush and as we were standing there you know uh, we thought well let's go tunica and let's see how our black jacket is going to be so as we were leaving the guy who stayed at his house alan he says hey gary we got we got to bring a souvenir back from this place i said what do you have in mind he said let's bring some dirt back so here we are in the center of the crossroads digging up dirt and putting it in plastic sandwich bags. Uh, I had some. He had some. And we went to Tunica, came back later that night to his home in uh, Jackson. And the girl who went with me, somehow or another, we had taken her car and left my car. And uh, so we drove down. And as we were driving back, we had to go through Nashville. So I called my attorney. And it just so happens that in town that weekend were two other friends of mine, Jamie Oldacre, who had played drums with Eric Clapton from 461 Ocean Boulevard through the 90s. So if you hear I Shot the Sheriff, that's him on drums. And then somebody we're going to meet in Toronto when I get there, Leo Lyons. Right. He was in, Mem- he was in Nashville at the time? Yeah, he was in Nashville at the time. Matter okay. of fact, he actually has an apartment in Nashville. So he stays in Nashville and writes songs and does some production as well as travel the world with his bands. So when we got to the restaurant to eat, I said, hey, guess what I've got in our car? I said, I've got some dirt from the crossroads. Well, Jamie Odegger looked at me and said, oh, no, don't bring that mojo in here. I mean, <laughs> that was serious. He was really sort of really freaked out about it. Oh, he was being serious. Yeah, dead serious. He wasn't kidding. And uh, he also told me that Eric Clapton had some superstitions that uh, when they performed with Muddy Waters, that one of the road crew picked up Muddy Waters' signature red Fender Telecaster and handed it to Clapton, or was trying to hand it to Clapton. And Clapton's eyes got wide and pushed his hands back. He said, no, too much mojo. And he wouldn't touch it. Wow. So, you know, I knew that Jamie was into that, so I figured that because he knew Muddy Waters. But 
when uh, Leo said, oh, I'd love to see it, you know, I'd love to do the tours. And, and so I knew that that was pretty good. So we never went to see the dirt. But somehow or another, I had my uh, cell phone off when I switched cars back in Cookville. And I drove home and my phone was off. And when I got home, I turned my cell phone on and I had all these messages. Now, this was what was strange. The first message was from the girl who was uh, beating the snake with the with the uh, tree limb. That's right, in the cemetery across from the Devil's Crossroads. Right. Exactly. And when they got back to Little Rock, Mar- uh, Arkansas, she had been rushed to the hospital with a brain aneurysm. Oh, my Lord. I mean, just within minutes. And my fraternity brother, who uh, we were at his home, Alan, who helped me dig the dirt, uh, 15 minutes after we all left, he was rushed to the hospital with a heart attack. Oh, my. So an, an aneurysm, a brain aneurysm, and a heart attack, and both survived, both okay? They both survived, thank gosh. But then <laughs> my other, my phone started ringing, and it was the girl that went with me. And she says, I don't know what's happening. She says, but, but, you know, all these strange things are happening in my house. My motion detectors are going off, but there's nobody here. And, you know, she'd called the police had come. And then she started really getting scared because when she moved her luggage in, she had forgotten to give me my dirt back. And she had my bag of Crossroads dirt. Aha. Uh-huh. So the next morning she calls me again from work and she says, they're still coming to my house. The police are. There's something in my house. And, you know, she thought it was something dark, demonic. And I said, listen, here's what you do. You take that dirt and you take it to the river and you empty that dirt into the river. And I said, everything's going to be all right. So I played a little psychology there. So she did. And sure enough, everything was all right. Well, I guess it was a month later, maybe two that I had a surprise birthday party, and they all came up, and I noticed that Alan, who was in really good health now, had brought me a gift, and it felt sort of oblong and sort of awkward feeling, you know, and when I opened the paper, there was an antique glass bottle with a cork stopper, and when you look into the bottle, there was about eight tablespoons of dirt Uh from the crossroads with a nice little plaque saying the crossroads and what year we went. Now, nothing's happened to me, but I have to tell you, I've got that dirt sitting here right now, and I'm looking at it, and if it started to glow or something like that, it would be kind of freaky. I think what balances out the crossroads was the next year I went to Italy, and I went to the Vatican, and (laughs) when I was in the Vatican bookstore, one of the nuns sold me a beautiful cross, a crucifix. And uh, she asked me, she said, would you like the Holy Father to bless this for you? And I said, excuse me? She said, would you like the Holy Father, the Pope, to bless this for you? And I said, well, yeah, sure, you know. So I gave her my crucifix, the name of my hotel, my room number, went out to dinner, came back, and on my doorknob, there was a plastic bag with my crucifix, with a letter of authenticity where it had been personally blessed by Pope John Paul II. So what I do, I've got the dirt on my left side, 
and I've got the crucifix on my right side. All right. Well, uh, that's an amazing story. Even better than I remember, uh, Gary. Somehow I told you a little bit more about it. I think you did. You were holding back on me the last time, but that's—I'm not holding back. We're going to have a great time in Toronto. I love Toronto. That's a remarkable story, and and I'm not kidding. I mean, I open the show and I'm ready to to launch into everything, and my computer goes. uh, Just the screen died momentarily, and then I couldn't get back what I had up on the screen, and then we get you on the phone, and then you drop off. Are you sure you've got the crucifix right there by the uh, the vial of uh, dirt? Now, the crucifix is on the right side next to one side of my computer, and the vial of dirt is on the other side. So well, I, I don't know. The uh, the bad mojo, for, for whatever reason, is poking through tonight. Our Gary Patterson is with us. Take a walk on the dark side. And he'll be here in Toronto October the 15th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, a Strange Planet production. And you can go to strangeplanet.ca, the live events page. Uh, to uh, order your tickets and to get more information. Uh, again, coming up on a break, but let's get this this conversation started. One of the other amazing um, stories in rock, in terms of, I guess, curses, uh, has to do with Delphi Records. Bob Keane, they used to call him the Oracle of Delphi, which is kind of a, a clever <laughs> a nickname. But Bob Keane, I mean, he, he that Delphi Records uh, kick-started the careers of people like Sam Cooke, although I don't know if it was Delphi Records then. Was it called Keane Records or something? It may have been. I yeah. know that, uh, that I think at one time Sam was with Delphi when it came out okay. a little later. But Delphi but was around that, for a long time. I know that uh, Bob was the one who controlled his uh, recordings. Right. So Sam Cooke, uh, Richie Valens, did he not start at Delphi? Yes. Uh, of course, Bobby Fuller, mm-hmm. I, shot the, I, shot, or, um, I Fought the Law and the Law won. We all, right. we all remember that song. Uh, but, I mean, Delphi continued for a long time. I think um, uh, Frank Zappa started on Delphi, if memory serves. He may have. Uh, even Barry White, I think, worked <laughs> at Delphi at one time. But... Uh, the uh, the curse of Delphi Records, or I don't know if it's a curse, or it's just a lot of a string of of, uh, of murder and mayhem, perhaps. I don't know. What, what, let's let's talk about Delphi Records, and uh, where do we start, Gary? Well, let's start with Richie Valens, and uh, when Richie Valens came out and had a number, I think he had maybe three hit songs. Signed on to the Winter Dance Party tour, mm-hmm. he was terrified of flying. And the reason he was terrified of flying is that he'd gone to his grandfather's funeral, and while he was gone that day, there were two planes that crashed in the air over his junior high school, and his best friend was killed from the wreckage. And Richie Valens always took his guitar, and he played on his lunch hour or lunch break under this tree, and that's where the the wreckage came down, and his friend was killed. So he was convinced that his grandfather's death saved his life, but he was terrified of flying. So, uh, that's unbelievable when you think about it. I mean, that does not... I mean, a mid-air collision, two planes, and then the wreckage falls and kills somebody on the ground. It's very difficult to believe, isn't it? It's it is. It's almost like maybe something supernatural. But I know he didn't like to fly, but for some reason, on February 3rd, 1959, he got on the plane with uh, Richie Valens and the big bobber. Or Buddy Roger Holly. Peterson. Richie, Richie Valens got on the plane with Buddy Holly. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry. Richie Valens on the plane with Buddy Holly Richie, and uh, the big bopper and Roger Peterson, the pilot, and they crashed, and that was the day the music died. Now, right. Richie was with Delphi Records. He was only 17 years old when he died, and there was a life insurance policy. Now, a lot of people take a look 
at what happened on the plane crash. And someone who's going to be talking with us from uh, Toronto will be Peggy Sue Guerin, who Buddy Holly wrote the song for, Peggy Sue. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but she has some definite ideas that she thinks happened. Well, Delphi had enough money that they could sign some other artists and make themselves a little bigger. And the next thing you know, you had uh, Sam Cooke. And Sam Cooke's death has always been questioned, where he goes into this motel and some uh, prostitute steals his clothes. He rushes in, and the, the lady in charge of the motel, Miss Franklin, shoots him and beats him with a a club and and they find his body and they think it could be a mob hit well there's another insurance policy another insurance policy uh, that's been taken out by Delphi Records right alright listen we're going to hold it right there Gary we'll come back and continue to talk about Delphi Records Bob Keen uh, and much more as we go traipsing through the rock and roll graveyard with our Gary Patterson right here on the Conspiracy Show stay with us If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back to the program. Coming up in a couple of weeks, Stanton Friedman, the granddaddy of ufology. Stanton Friedman will be here. Uh, right now, our Gary Patterson stays with us on the line from Knoxville, Tennessee, in uh, advance of his appearance in Toronto at a live event I'll be presenting at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium October the 15th called Take a Walk on the Dark Side. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and the live events page for more information. Right now on the webcam, for those of you joining us on the HOA, there is the box, and there's something inside that box, and my remote viewer, story producer Albert Venzel. Um, is uh, attempting to uh, figure out what's in that box. Before we go back to Gary, quickly, uh, Albert, how are we doing over there? It's probably just another... Turn the camera around so people can see you. It's probably just another wild guess, but something to do with a car or something on wheels or the number three. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, my friend. Back to the the drawing board you go. All right. Uh, Gary Patterson, we were talking about Delphi Records, and we mentioned Richie Valens, and we know what happened to to poor Richie, February 3rd, 1959, the day the music died. Uh, And then Sam Cooke, another Delphi record uh, um, artist, uh, who was uh, shot and bludgeoned to death at a motel. Was that 1965, I think? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, right in the right the height of his his career. And uh, so then, uh, did you want to add any more anything more to, to Sam Cooke before we move on? Well, no, but another insurance policy. Right. And so now you have two of your top artists. They've died in, well, tragic circumstances, and the label receives a great deal of money on their policy. Mm-hmm. And then finally we get to Bobby Fuller. Right. And when we get to, to Toronto, we'll talk a little bit about this Buddy Holly curse. But Bobby Fuller was from West Texas, and uh, he sent a demo tape of his band to Bobby, uh, to Buddy Holly's mother and father. Is it the Bobby and, Fuller Four? Yeah, Bobby Fuller Four. Mm-hmm. And uh, Buddy's father sent the tape to Clovis, New Mexico, uh, to Norman Petty, who was Buddy's co-songwriter, his producer and engineer. So they actually signed Bobby Fuller, and he stayed there for a while. But then he leaves Clovis, and he makes his way to Los Angeles, and he has a monster hit called I Thought the Law and the Law One." Now, that song was written by Sonny Curtis, who was one of the crickets, and they really didn't have any luck recording it themselves, but Bobby Fuller made a monster hit out of it. The last song he recorded was a song called Love's Made a Fool of You, which was written by Buddy Holly, which is kind of interesting. Well, one night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, he gets a phone call, and his mother had come in to spend some time with him. This is in L.A.? He's in L.A., and she's from Texas, but she drove in and uh, to be with her boys because his brother, Randy, was the bass player. So he puts the phone down, and he tells his mother, he says, I have to go out for a while, won't be long, and is it all right if I use your car? Because Bobby had just bought a brand-new Corvette, and his mother had an older, I think it was an Oldsmobile, and she said, well, sure. So he takes off. He doesn't come back for a long time. Matter of fact, his mother gets really concerned, calls the manager, and she she says, oh, Bobby, you know, he'll be back, he'll be back. Well, she hears the car pull into the garage, and she waits a while, and he doesn't come in. So when she comes out to the garage to see her car, she finds his body lying across the front seat, and he had been badly beaten, bruised. Uh, his left index finger was broken, and he had been doused in gasoline, and there was gasoline in his stomach. Oh, my. So she calls Bob Keene from Delphi. Right. And Bob comes over, and he he sees the body, talks to the police, and they took the gas can out of the back seat, and they threw it in a dumpster dumpster. They didn't dust it for fingerprints. Didn't dust it for fingerprints. And the coroner's report was that he had committed suicide. Oh, Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but... If you're a guitar player, you sure don't want to break your left index finger, and you don't douse yourself with gasoline, and you can't possibly drink it, because once you drink gasoline, you regurgitate it. It's impossible. So Bobby had been murdered, and the gasoline had been poured down his throat. Now, now what, what possible motives are there, Gary? Well, there's a big motive. And it has to do with a girl whose name is Melody, because Bobby was dating this girl who also was dating one of the big crime bosses back in Texas. So a lot of people think that this was a contract, a hit, placed on Bobby Fuller. Now, Randy Fuller, his brother, hired a private detective to find out what happened. 
according to the story, the detective went back to his office one night, and there were two men in the office, and they shot at him. And the detective quit. Uh, Randy said that someone tried to run him off the road. So the family moved back to Texas. And the story of Bobby Fuller, well, the story is that, uh, you know, I guess it's death by misadventure. But there's, you know, it just seems like an injustice when you know you can't commit suicide with swallowing gasoline. And, uh, and again, did Bob Keene and Delphi Records have a, have a big insurance policy out on Bobby Fuller? Yes, they did. There you go. Now, here's the other thing. Bob Keene was investigated by the FBI. He was. And, okay. You know, he said, why would I kill my top three artists? And that was what Bob King said, because I worked on a television series of VH1 called VH1 Confidential, and we have an interview with uh, Bob King where he says that. All right. Listen, got to go, uh, Gary. Come back uh, on the other side, and we'll, uh, we'll talk some more rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. Our Gary Patterson right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, next week on the program, Morgan Reynolds. We'll uh, talk uh, more 9-11. Right now, our Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of Rock, stays with us on the line from Knoxville. Again, he'll be coming to town October the 15th for a special live event called Take a Walk on the Dark Side. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the live events page. Now, uh, Albert Vinzel, one last kick at the can, my remote viewing friend. What's in the box? You may have got me on this one. See, what what happens is when your unconscious finds it boring, it just takes off, and you need to tap in your like your answers in the unconscious. And then part that creeps people out is that like you see future disasters and stuff like that. So then they they never touch it again because it's like not for them. But I'm just gonna take the last wild guess and say brick, and I get that from Major Paul Smith because he would always throw that into his session. A brick. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we just before we do that now, because you've got the the vial of dirt from the crossroads, and you've got a a crucifix from the Vatican, blessed by the Holy Father, John Paul II. Uh, Gary Patterson, what's in the box? You're asking me. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> you've got your mojo working. It's not dirt, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's not dirt. Open up the box there, uh, Albert. All right, and there we have it. Are you pointing the camera at it? Okay. It's a pair. It's a pair. There you go. All right, better luck next time, Albert. Thanks for playing along. All right, uh, Gary, we were talking about Delphi Records and uh, uh, Bobby Fuller, Sam Cooke, and um, 
the, the first one was... Um, Richie Valens. Richie Valens. All, the three top-grossing artists on Delphi all died horrible, violent deaths. And um, so Bob Keane was interviewed by the FBI in connection with all three deaths? Yes, yeah, because there was a little concern he was killing his artists and collecting the, the insurance policies. Right, right. Now, Delphi yeah. is now defunct, but it had a pretty good run. No, he did. Yeah. But, you know, this is not an old thought. I mean, we go back to, uh, well, we can go back to the late, great Johnny Ace. Ah, yes. Who was the first actual fatality when you're going to get to early rock and roll. I mean, his name was Johnny Alexander, but he called himself Johnny Ace because his dad was a minister. And his father did not want his son playing secular music, which is exactly how Sam Cooke you know, he was a gospel singer at first, and he went into secular right. music. So when Johnny Ace would carry his pistol with him and drink a little too much, and he was at a show, I think it was in Houston, with Big Mama Thornton, and he was taking his gun and putting it at his girlfriend's head and pulling the trigger, and it was clicking a revolver, and he turned it to his girlfriend's friend and pulled the trigger, and it didn't go off, and Big Mama Thornton grabbed the gun from him, and then he grabbed it back and said, it's not loaded, and pointed it at his head, pulled the trigger, and booked his ticket to rock and roll heaven. There you go. And uh, But his label came out with a thing called The Late Great Johnny Ace, and Paul Simon had a song about it. That's right. Because it's funny. Uh, one of the things that's funny is that when someone dies, you can go to any grocery store, and you can find all the stuff you can pick up, because... Death is big money. And Jimi Hendrix once said, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. Well, the you would be whoever owns the rights to your your work. They're made for life. That's right. Or they have a, a life insurance policy uh, on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, now let's just give people a, a little bit of a, a preview of what you're going to be talking about on October the 15th here in Toronto. Okay, great. We're going to go back. Probably in the beginning, and we're going to take a look at a lot of the things we talked about with Delphi, and we're going to take a look at how the United States government thought rock and roll was uh, an American. And when we talk about the day the music died, which is in 1959, it was almost the year the music died, because Elvis Presley had been in the Army for a couple of years, and he was out of his career. And when he comes back, he's uh, playing Dean Martin roles in movies. And the rawness of Elvis Presley was over, okay? Alan Freed, the DJ who created the term rock and roll, was uh, destroyed by the payola scandals, which was, well, where record labels would pay disc jockeys to play popular music and that they would get more airplay. So there was money that was exchanged. It destroyed him. And then you had Chuck Berry, who was in prison, for violation of the Mann Act, where he brought this underage girl to work in a casino. And then you had Jerry Lee Lewis, who had married his 13-year-old cousin and destroyed his career. And when you take a look at how they all fell apart, rock and roll, Danny, well, Danny the Jr. said rock and roll is here to stay, but, you know, it almost died. Because then you had a lot of, well, I don't want to call it no talent, but you had the Fabians and the Bobby Rodells and the uh, Tommy Sands and... You know, you had these people come out, Frankie Avalon, and they were doing songs. And, right. And it was like young Dean Martins. 
But right. You also have the birth of that sort of that the surf music before the Beach Boys. You had uh, the uh, the Safaris, and you had mm-hmm. was it the Delrays? Dale. Yep. And uh, Miserly, you had surf music, which right. was you know that wasn't bad. And then the Beach Boys, what they were able to do was take surf music, Chuck Berry, and doo wop, and put it together in something new. Right. But then when the Beatles landed in 64, it went back to the rawness of rock and roll when the Stones hit, too. So the British invasion sort of turned it full circle. And you're going to find out, you know, there's a number of mysterious deaths uh, of influential artists, too, especially in the 60s when we get to the Monterey and we get to some of the, the counterculture as it happened. And, of course, Leo Lyons is going to talk to us about performing at Woodstock because the first time I saw the movie Woodstock, I remember 10 years after. They they stole the show in in many ways. They stole the show, didn't they? They did. And Leo had his wonderful red handlebar mustache, and he was just all over the stage playing bass. And I've known him for several years, and he can tell us what it was like at Woodstock. And I think he rode in on the helicopter with Jimi Hendrix and was one of the last people to actually jam with Hendrix before Hendrix died. So, you know, we have these stories, and plus Leo's a psychic. I mean, this guy goes to the London Academy of Psychic Studies and takes the courses, and he had to walk cold into an audience and start saying, all right, there's someone whose name is George. (laughs) Right, right. Raise your hand. So he did that. So, And he also had a terrifying experiences with Ouija boards. Aha. So... Oh, now, doesn't that sound interesting? I'll say. Uh, I just I, I spoke briefly with uh, Leo just the other day. Uh, we were just sort of testing the Skype and so forth because he's in London right now. Right. And um, so I, I saw Leo. Looks great. Still, he told me that uh, he is still performing live between 70 and 100 shows a year. That's pretty grueling for a man who's uh, 70 years old. It is. But I tell you what, he is a fabulous bass player. Well, he loves it. He loves to play live. He does. And I think that's what – got to do what you, what you love. I mean, that's, that's what keeps you going. Well, that's the only reason he does it. I mean, he certainly doesn't need the money, and he just – he does it for the love of it. So, yeah. Leo, we're looking forward to having Leo Lyons joining us uh, by Skype from London. You mentioned Peggy Sue Guerin, who has some amazing stories about um, – well, in many ways, I mean, she was on the program with you uh, several months ago, and – do you think that she was, uh, he, she and Buddy were, were really like true loves? I know they were best friends from high school, and they were each married to somebody else. But I got the, the sense from, from Peggy Sue that, that Buddy was her first love, and, and, uh, and he loved her deeply as well. I think it happened when they went on the double honeymoon. Ah, okay. But we'll talk about that when right. we get there, too. Do you know that she actually has had a seance and tells me that she is convinced that she has communicated with Buddy Holly now? Well, we'll, uh, we'll get you to ask her that on the 15th. <laughs> and then we should also mention one more uh, uh, special appearance, and this will be Bill Harry, who will join us live from Liverpool. And Bill, uh, now, he, was he at the London School of Arts? With, he or, was. Was it with John Lennon at the London School of Arts? It was with John Lennon. He was John Lennon's lifelong friend from the beginning, before there was ever a Beatles, all the way up to his death. And he also was a very good friend with Stuart Sutcliffe. Mm -hmm. So he actually had a little bit in how he pushed that together. 
and how they were going to change the world. Uh, Bill with his writing, John with his songs, and Stu with his art. And he knew Paul McCartney as well, did he not? Oh, yeah. He and Paul are good friends. I right. mean, Ringo also, because mm. he created Mercy Beat magazine. That's right. Which was the magazine of the British invasion. Legendary. 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 And he wrote all of the great, all those great Beatle encyclopedias that were authorized by the Beatles. He wrote those as well. Oh, he did. I mean, Bill is probably the most prolific Beatle author anywhere. And he has some interesting ideas. All right. So uh, you're going to be giving your live presentation. You'll be talking about all of these wonderful, strange uh, tales of weirdness and coincidences and legends and curses surrounding some of our popular, our, our favorite rock icons. And then you'll sort of weave in these, uh, these interviews on Skype with, again, the likes of Peggy Sue Guerin, Bill Harry and Leo Lyons. It's going to make for a, a, an interesting uh, program, and we're looking forward to it, Gary. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I've got a lot of friends in Toronto, and I had a great time last time I was there. I think it was it last year or the year before? Uh, I think that was, uh, yeah, last year, last summer you were here. Yeah, okay, with George and Giorgio and uh, Peter Davenport. That's right, that's right. All right, so are you going to bring the, uh, the dirt from the crossroads with you? I don't know. You think I can get it through customs? <laughs> that won't be a problem. The question is, do you want to fly with that on your person? <laughs> you may My want to Lord. test it and see what it is. I mean, I don't want to get busted. All right. Let's uh, just once again remind people, uh, our Gary Patterson, take a walk on the dark side, Saturday, October the 15th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium right here in Toronto. And uh, that's from 4 to 8 p.m. It's going to be a great show. Great stories, stories that you've never heard before, or these are rarely or never before heard stories, and uh, Gary's got them all. And uh, for more information and to purchase tickets, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Gary, can't wait, my friend. I can't either. It's always good to see you and spend time with you, Richard, and I'm looking forward to seeing everyone in Toronto. All right. Gary Patterson. There he goes. All right. We... uh, well, we kicked off our What's in the Box segment tonight with uh, young Albert Vinzel. And uh, just to remind people, what was in the box, Albert? You take a bite out of it like an apple. It's food, a pear. A pear. And <laughs> it, uh, when, when you show it, then it's like, yeah, that was on the tip of my tongue. It was in the back of my mind, but I didn't say it. The, the trick is not to hold back. Whatever you see, just write it down. That's right, because you're, you're over, you're, you, you overanalyze, right? You're allowing your intellectual mind to get in the way. Yeah. Like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't. Well, that's all right. We'll try it again uh, next week, perhaps. What's in the box? Albert Vinzel. Uh, we mentioned coming up in the program in the, uh, the next couple of weeks, Stanton Friedman will be with us. He's got a brand new book out along with Kathleen Martin. And uh, also Morgan Reynolds will be with us next week. And Ali Siadatan, our good friend Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions, he has a brand new documentary out. It's called Goliath Rising. All right. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV camper, your parents' basement, loft, taxi, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace and love, and it is, incidentally, one of the largest broadcast footprints anywhere in North America. Uh, Once the sun goes down, this signal carries south to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota and all points in between. Hi to all of you catching us on our HOA, Hangout on Air. Good to have you aboard. And uh, incidentally, if you want to join, just go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett and find the link with the HOA link, or find the tweet with the HOA link and click on it and you're in. Uh, How do to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across the United States and Canada, the podcasts, of course, at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes. Uh, Incidentally, uh, a couple people emailed me in the last couple of weeks saying that they were having trouble with the downloading the podcast or getting it to stream on iTunes. So I checked with the techie people here at Zoomer, and they say, no, it's working fine. Uh, hey, and don't forget the uh, the podcast at TalkZone.com. Uh, all right. And, oh, let us not forget our two wonderful apps where you can take this show wherever you go. Zoomer Radio is a terrific app and uh, the Conspiracy Show app. They're both free downloads from the Apple Store and Google Play for those of you who have Androids. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. Uh, Peter Moon, independent investigator and author, is standing by uh, to discuss one of my favorite subjects, time travel. Uh, he has made, made uh, a number of expeditions to Romania, and uh, we'll discuss science fiction or science facts when it comes to time travel in just a few moments. Just a reminder, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Now that's your portal to all of my projects, and uh, the click on the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. And there you can learn all about uh, tonight's show, for example, uh, information on our guests, any books they have, links to their websites. Uh, take a moment to register there. As a member, you just click on the blue, bu- blue button. It's, it's easy and fast and free, and it gives you access to member-only areas. Uh, all right. Let's get to it, shall we? Peter Moon is primarily known for his investigation of space-time projects. These concern projects in the past, present, and future that control both time and perception of time. 
He's an avid reader, and as a, uh, he was an avid reader as a young man. He studied creative writing and literature and was particularly interested in both the scientific ext- extrapolations of science fiction as well as the high adventure that it provided. In 1983, Peter moved to Long Island, where his unique background enabled him to forge an association with scientist Preston Nichols, one of the world's foremost experts in the world on electromagnetic phenomena who has been involved in strange experiments at the Montauk Air Force Station on Long Island, which included the manipulation of time. Their collaboration in writing The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, and its subsequent sequels have now reached legendary proportions. Peter's work caught the attention of time control scientist Dr. David Anderson of the Time Travel Research Center on Long Island, now reincorporated as the Anderson Institute in New Mexico, who invited him to Romania and paved the way for him to investigate other space-time projects as discussed in the Transylvania series, one of which includes uh, what has been called the most amazing archaeological artifact in the history of mankind, a chamber that contains a holographic record of the Earth's history as well as holographic readouts of human DNA and also other species. Peter has just released a new series of videos, Time Travel Theory Explained, which explains in simple language the actual scientific principles demonstrating that time travel is within the boundaries of ordinary mathematics and physics. He's the author of The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, and his new book, The White Bat, The Alchemy of Writing. Peter Moon, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me begin by asking you a little bit about David Anderson, your association with David Anderson. For those who are not familiar with Dr. David Anderson and his work with time travel, give us some details. Well, uh, Dr. Anderson is a very intriguing and mysterious character who appeared in my life in um, August 11th, 1999. Uh, he appeared as a physical human being. He was a subscriber to my newsletter, The Montauk Pulse. Uh, prior to that, so I had some idea of who he was when he introduced himself. Um, he introduced himself as a uh, physicist and mathematician who had a time travel research center on Long Island, in Hopog, Long Island at the time. And he uh, said that he would like to work with me, that he invited he invited me out to lunch about a week later, and uh, he had just gotten back from Romania, where he attended a camp. Um, he was a fill-in substitute uh, at that camp. He was in Germany at the time, and they said, will you fill in at this camp and talk to this camp in Romania uh, called Atlanticron? And we'll be talking about that probably. But uh, he said that he would like to get me to Romania, meet some of his friends there. And, of course, that was 1999. It, it wasn't until 2008 that I actually got to Romania. But um, David Anderson at that time said that he had developed um, a field whereby you could slow down time or speed it up. That field was about the size of a soccer ball. And he began to learn this technology sort of by, I guess, happenstance when he was studying uh, satellites in outer space when he was working for the U.S. Air Force. He was assigned to help them uh, keep their position because satellites will drift out. So he ended up learning about uh, how to warp space and time through 
for satellites, and he realized that this what he was studying had the potential to actually change time. And he tried to, to air, interest the Air Force in this, but they were too dense, and they, they, didn't, they didn't accept it. So because his work was stalled in the Air Force, he got released from the Air Force, applied to get released from the Air Force. He was approved. He'd sold all his stuff, uh, and he was ready to leave. But then they wouldn't let him leave because they figured there was more to this than, than they had realized, at which point he petitioned Senator Jay Rockefeller of West Virginia, which was his home state, and, and Rockefeller helped him get released. And he went out, uh, he patented the algorithms to affect this uh, satellite technology. And he went out, became independent, and he, he got a lot of uh, private interest in his research from the medical industry, or the medical investors, because if you, you can slow down time, you can preserve organs. So that's where a lot of his initial funding came from. Uh, and then that was 1999 when I met him. Um, by the year 2010, he announced that he could actually send humans back into time. He had he had a huge, uh, a much bigger field. I mean, because he expanded the field from the size of a soccer ball. There was a lot of drama in between then, you know, 2000, 1999 and 2010, which he went out of contact totally with me for, for five years. And then suddenly... Did, did he give you any details on, on how... Obviously, this would have been all proprietary uh, information, but did he give you any clues as to how he stumbled onto this, the, creating yes. this field? Yes. He, he gave clues because he was studying... Well, in other words, the Air Force had problems with their satellites drifting in outer space. So he had to create a, a space-time model to figure out how to maintain those those satellites. And in studying, in studying that, he realized that time could actually space-time could actually be warped, right, right, and effectively warped. And but. Um, I'm a little unsure as to whether I, they were using that. I don't know if they were using that for the satellites or it was the study of that where they were actually making the satellites, you know, maintain their orbit. Because I, I do know that they, uh, a, a girl from NASA told me that they actually use sort of retro rockets to, to maintain those satellites. But I don't know if all satellites have retro rockets. So because they, their orbits will decay. So I'm, I'm not really sure if his study involved using retro rockets or his study literally had them maintaining, you know, slowing down time. I, I'm not really sure right. about that, but that's what got him into it, and then he saw the potential of it. Um, in order to forestall the, de the, the decay of these satellites in orbit, this field, uh, th that was sort of the idea, and it led to the development of this, this field. Yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's something like that. I, 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 right. I, that's one thing I will ask him when I have more, uh, you know, talk time with him. It's, it's not, you know, a terribly important question for me, but, I mean, I, I am interested in it. And, sure. And I will put, put that on. It's one of my list of questions when I, when I meet him and have a chance to ask him. Absolutely. Now, um, that period that you were sort of incommunicado with him, 
Um, was he time traveling? Do you suspect, or did he tell no, you? No, I, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, but the, this funny thing about him is that when you've been tagged um, by by that phenomena, you know how, how can you how how do we know exactly? Um, but uh, when he was gone from uh, about two thousand three to 2008 he had left a bunch of his stuff with me that uh, he had a museum he was building the the time travel museum he was going to build on long island and he when he went he had to get rid of his time travel research center in long island and he said he was going into he ended up working for bosch industries in rochester new york hmm. and bosch is a huge defense contractor and what he was working on was security systems. He didn't really talk, but you'd see him pop up on the Internet where he was doing high-powered security systems in uh, India. And I always got the impression that because he had had problems with his research center being broken into uh, in Long Island, he had a couple of robberies. Oh, bad. Yeah, and, and he basically, then the government came to him and said, hey, look, at, we'll help you with security. We'll help you with security. Let's partner up. And, of course, it made me think that they were the ones that caused the break-in. Exactly. Create the disease in order to offer the cure. Uh, hold on, Peter. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and talk about time travel, science fact, science fiction, and uh, you'll take us to Romania and just tell us what you discovered there. Peter Moon, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Peter Moon is with us. The website, timetraveleducationcenter.com. Timetraveleducationcenter.com. And uh, if you go onto the website... Uh, there's sort of a free tutorial there where you can learn the math and physics of time travel simplified for the layman. Uh, Peter Moon. Uh, now, did this, uh, did this come to you from, from David Anderson, this uh, sort of the, the algorithms involved in, in time travel, or how was the, the, well, this the, theory the, explained? The, it's, it's not necessary to get into algorithms and whatnot for, for understanding this. Um, and what, what happened basically, how this came to be, was I, I was 
you know, he brought me to Romania in 2008. And in 2008, it was, uh, there was a lot of international guests at this camp. Now, the camp is called Atlanticron, and it meets in southeast Romania on an island in the Danube every August, or it was July at that time. And it's for kids, basically, artists, writers, and scientists. And you have ages 16 to 30. It's now younger kids are allowed there now as well. And, and of course, there are older people who come as well. About three to 400 people will come through the island in a particular week. And there's university professors there, some of the best professors in, in Romania. And... They would also invite international guests at that point. So I'm from New York. There were six other people from New York with me on that particular year. But in 2008, we had an economy crash. So all of the corporate funding that was coming, sort of like free stuff as soon as I show up, uh, kind of dried up. And so, like, I'm the only one who comes back (laughs) out of all those people. Right, right. Um, and I go back, uh, you know, self-funded. I was brought there by corporate dollars, basically, or by the World Genesis Foundation, uh, which got sponsorship from corporate corporations. Um, I'm now one of the board members of the World Genesis Foundation, um, which is to give kids an opportunity to, you know, make sure everybody can have an opportunity, if at all possible. So, in any case... Uh, the, the second year when I went back, 2009, uh, David Anderson was giving lectures on time travel, time travel theory, and all the stuff you see on the videos on timetraveleducationcenter.com is what I learned. Now, I actually co-lectured with him. Uh, he would lecture, and, and then he'd invite me. He'd say, you know, he'd run down, whatever, and I'd, I'd pop in and start talking about the stuff that I've written about, and then I'd turn it back to him. And, um, and of course, I was getting educated in the process. But that was 2009. Um, he told me that he would be putting it out on a website at the end of that year, which he did do, which you can now find, andersoninstitute.com. But if you, if the average individual, and even the average highly trained highly educated physicist goes to that website um, nobody really caught on and he taught me something which is explained in the the first video you'll look at it is called the invariance of the space-time interval this is a concept that was uh, put forth by John Archibald Wheeler um, a very famous physicist uh, who is also one of the authors of the Everett Wheeler hypothesis or many worlds theory and uh, David explained this to me. He personally tutored me on this concept, and when he did, he says there's only about four physicists in the world who understand this. Um, this is no longer the case. Many more physicists do. Um, so anyway, is, is, although I tell you I, I learned this stuff and I studied it, uh, I, did, I did understand the invariance of the space-time interval. But... I had to work, when I got home, I forgot it, and I had to work very hard at recapturing it, which I did. Nevertheless, it wasn't until two years ago that I began to 
tackle that website. And it, it, it's sort of explained in the new book I'm working on. Uh, it's called Stardust and Initiation into Time, which is also available as I write it to the subscribers to the website. The, there's a paid subscribership and a free subscribership. That one's part of the paid stuff, and I haven't finished the book yet. They can watch me write it, but basically, I started doing an exercise, a qigong exercise, called the dark room, where I immerse myself in darkness two or three times a day, which is an exercise I've done, and that enabled me to actually comprehend his website, ah. and then to dumb it down. And I, when I say dumb it down, I'm not really saying that in an insulting fashion, because you have to mem- realize I'm not a physicist or a high-level mathematician, okay. I have an apt, a high aptitude in math, but it's something I never pursued beyond, you know, pre-calculus. Right, right. So, so, so but in any words, and I'm very good at breaking things down into simple language. So I took what he, in that, that uh, his uh, website, and I put it into a, a newsletter, Montauk Pulse newsletter, which is, I think I mentioned already, he used to subscribe to it. Now I always send it to him for free. But he, he read the article, and he was so impressed with it. He said, he says, nobody's ever had the patience to break this down. He says, can I use this when I go on my lectures, you know, to universities wherever I go? I said, well, of course you can. I made a special edition for him and uh, to make it more, you know, academic-friendly. And then it came around... Uh, last November, I decided to put these into video shape form. So I, I took, uh, you know, and, and see, he was supposed to release videos on time travel years ago. He always wanted to do time travel videos for the public, but these would never get done. And the last time I talked to him about that, uh, he said that his partners were, were prohibiting that. And by his partners, I assume he means the government. Right. I, don't, I don't push him uh, on certain topics. But, but nevertheless, um, so now I find myself doing the videos. Now, the, it's one thing to, to get the mathematics down. Uh, but it's another thing to have the, the, the energy. I'm, I'm assuming it would require a great deal of energy to create one of these fields. I mean, I don't know, you know the, what, are the, what the physics are, the mechanics are involved in creating a field. Um, but I, I would imagine, I mean, it would be formidable. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of energy, and it, it requires so much energy that uh, scientists recognized um, Frank Tipler in the 1970s wrote a paper. From Tulane University, isn't that's it? That's correct. Yeah. And, and he, he basically uh, formulated something uh, called the, the Tipler Cylinder, which showed that... Um, you know, you could actually move in, you know, in time, but it required a tremendous amount of energy that was, you know, many times the power of the sun. Now, where this breakthrough was able to be, to happen for uh, David Anderson's time reactor, which is a patented technology, is that um, where the breakthrough happened was that he realized that when they were putting energy into, you know, the, the little system that they had, which is the size of a soccer ball, it would actually create more energy. So it looked like they were getting free energy from somewhere, and they didn't understand it. 
And what what basically is is when you have two um, what you call areas of um, I can't even remember the name um, time dilation going on ro- ro- rotating fields is creating time dilation which we have around the Earth. So right. when the Earth spins, it it's really changing time, but it's only a fraction. It's so infinitesimally small that it doesn't count. But when you, but, but there's a natural energy in that warping of the field, you know, a rotating body. And when you can tap it, and when you have two, two of these areas together, they will create what's called a space-time motive force discharge. Space-time motive force is a term that he had to coin because it is a, a new, different type of energy than is conventionally... Um, right. Has, has this work been published and peer-reviewed? Well, as one of uh, David's friends said, he has no peers. <laughs> you see, right. and, and, and so it, it tends to be attacked. Uh, has it been published? He, you can go to the website... Actually, I, I don't know that I have it. Um, it's I have it on my website for the paid subscribers, but it's also on the internet. Harvesting space-time motive force, uh, where he discusses two videos, part one and part two, uh, where he discusses the, you know, how this is accomplished. Right. And you know, I'd be but, very curious, uh, Dr. Ronald Mallett from the University of Connecticut, a theoretical physicist who's been working on. Uh, theoretical time machine for some time, and uh, uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking with him a number of times and meeting him a number of times. I'm wondering, has he ever been exposed to this information? Do you do you have you ever spoken with? Uh, um, he has been completely exposed as a, uh, you know, a virtual fraud. Uh, in other words, he is a scientist. And Spike Lee bought his book for a whole lot of money, and he was featured in Popular Mechanics. But he has no, he has no real laboratory. And he, he basically, it looked like he took some of David Anderson's work and kind of funked it up. But he, he does not understand the basic principles, and he doesn't even have any funding of any serious amount. He was, you know, trying to get money, and and, uh, you know. He, he has been exposed as somebody who, who really doesn't know that much and certainly isn't doing anything. And, but he gets built up by popular science or mechanics, or whatever, published them. See, and they, they ignore David Anderson. All right. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. When you say he's been exposed, I don't know. You can that. look on the Internet and, and you can see what he has and what he knows and what he doesn't know. I'm, I'm saying is, and I, I, mean, I say that, you know, forthright from all, all the available knowledge. But, he, but in other words, he actually says you can't go back in time from before you, where your time machine right, right. is. Right, right. Yeah, you can't and, go and back which, further than before the time, uh, yes, time machine was developed. He has a complete misunderstanding, as you'll see in the videos. I don't mention him in the videos. Okay. The only reason I bring him up is, or mention him is because you brought him up. Right, right. But, well, it's, um, it's one thing to say someone is, is, you know, they're incorrect in their thinking. But I, I just – I want to be very cautious about throwing a word, around words like fraud. Well, I, well as I say, you can, you can, you can look at uh, – uh, you, you can study, you look up, you know, uh, fraud and, and, and him, and you can, you can make up, people can make up their own mind. They'll have to do that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But um, um, from all of my understanding, yeah. In other words, uh, 
But the bottom line with him is, is if, you, if you look at these videos, the, f- the first seven videos of the series Time Travel Theory Explained, you'll see that he does not understand the whole concept of a closed time-like curve and, and how time can actually be uh, bent, and you can go back, you, 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 can, you can move it. He does not understand it. Okay, so and, this is interesting. So you're saying that, in f- that according to Dr. David Anderson's work, one could go back further in time previous to the actual development of this time time travel sure. time dilation field for that's sure. that's interesting all right yeah yeah and it's it's like you understand it and and I, I mean i had my own personal breakthroughs as i began to understand and read this stuff i i just kind of had this kind of like realize and i wasn't quite sure where the realization came but it made all of a sudden it made sense to me that when you slow down this field uh the, the more you slow it down the slower it goes, the further it will go into the future. The faster it goes, the further it will go into the past. And when I next got a hold of David, and I, he, he, I asked him if that was true. He says, yes, you slow it down. So this makes the idea of the H.G. Wells time machine that you see in the movie, where you see the clock spinning back right. forward, right. It's, that, that completely is um, in tune with, with the theories, as is the back of the back of the time machine contraption, which has got a rotating field on it. It's got a rotating uh, disc. So there is actually a machine. This is not just a field that you walk into or like a well, portal. Well, I, I said I'm talking about the H.G. Wells Right, machine. right. I'm, I'm saying that, that when they created the picture of that for the movie, right. uh, just based upon the book, it, 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 it really makes a lot of sense. Um, the way it was constructed. Right, so right. So we call, he calls it a time reactor. And um, I, I really, he hasn't shown uh, significant pictures of it. There's a diagram that's uh, just a diagram. That's, it's not even to scale. All right. Listen, Peter, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. And uh, I, wanna do, I, I do want to delve into your, your travels to Romania uh, when we come back. Peter Moon with the Time Travel Education Center right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Peter Moon, the Time Travel Education Center, timetraveleducationcenter.com. He has a new book out called The White Bat, The Alchemy of Writing. And, of course, you'll remember the, uh, the legendary Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. Uh, Sky Books is the uh, the publisher. All right, uh, uh, Peter, Romania, you've been back, what is it now, nine times? That's correct. Now tell me about uh, these uh, mysterious caves uh, that uh, you're saying or some are saying 
could be the most amazing archaeological artifact in the history of mankind. That's, <laughs> that's quite a buildup. Where are these caves in Romania? And, and tell me more. Okay, these, uh, it's, a, it's more of a chamber than a cave. This one is more of a chamber than a cave, per se, although I've investigated caves there. Is that um, in 2003, in August of 2003, uncovered in Romania was, a lot of us were anticipating what would happen in 2003, August, because of the what's called the 20-year biorhythm from 43 to 63 to 83 to 2003, and uh, there was a big blackout in, centered around uh, New York uh, at the 2003, but there was also a discovery of a chamber beneath the, the Romanian Sphinx. And there's a Sphinx in Romania, which is more or less on the border between uh, Transylvania and Wallachia. Um, how closely and, uh, does it resemble, excuse me, Peter, how closely does the Sphinx in Romania resemble the one in Egypt? Well, um, I'm, it, it does look like it. I have, one of the books, Mystery of Egypt, that uh, I've produced um, has has a picture of both of them on. They're, they're a little different. But um, the interesting thing, the Romanian Sphinx is not as sculpted in the same way that the one in Egypt is. In fact, there's a particular vantage point where it looks precisely like a Sphinx. Its left profile is a man. The right profile, and I, I only noticed this through looking through a, uh, a lens, is like a lion or a griffin. So the whole idea of a sphinx is half lion, right. half, half a human combination of the signs of Leo and Virgo. So anyway, um, it's, it's the most famous tourist attraction in Romania. Um, and so basically... Uh, beneath this chamber, like quite a ways underground, um, they were able to to find that there was some something that they couldn't penetrate with ground penetrating radar that was again coming from satellites, Pentagon satellites, and it was Americans that discovered it. And what is this thing down there that they can't, that the radar can't penetrate and see? So there, the, the book Transylvanian Sunrise is all about this whole secret project uh, that was done to uncover this these artifacts where they found, according to the, the book and according to the author Radu Sinemar, who, who I have had an extensive correspondence with outside the parameters of the books, um, basically stated that there was, um, and he actually saw saw this, um, after you go through a whole long passageway to get there, you get into this area where there's, I guess it would look like modern technology, but it's estimated to be some 50,000 years old, where there would be tables were for like uh, six feet high tables. In other words, they were for giant type creatures. And if you put your hand over one area of the table, uh, it would read out a holographic printout was a holographic readout of your hand. And the closer you put your hand on the table to this particular area, it would then give you a microscopic readout of your DNA, even down to the atomic level, depending where you put it. And the, the other parts of the table would, you know, might read out different, different aspects. There were other tables that would 
if you put your hand over it would read out the give you a picture a holographic readout of a of a creature and a star system and a planet and you would see what the star system was and what the creature was and then if you put your hand at the same time over another part it would show another creature and another star system and also a hybridization of the two of the two life forms. So do do we know who was down there that witnessed this firsthand? I mean, who is the whistleblower? Um, I don't know if whistleblower is the right word in this case, uh, but uh, but in any case, the, the the people who saw it that I know of, and 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 I know Radu through letters, uh, would be him. And and the the primary character in the story is a man named Caesar Brad, which is is a pseudonym. For he was the head of Department Zero, which was the most secret part of Romanian intelligence. And um, so Caesar knows who I do. I am, I know who he is, and our conduit has been Radu Cinemar. Although Radu himself has been out of touch for five years. He's only recently surfaced, but he hasn't written to me. Um, he's written to his publisher for the first time in five years. So. Um, which means he might have another book coming. I don't know, but uh, so so anyway, that that's that's what we know, and, and it's basically a story, uh, and it has a lot of legs to it, because at the same time, uh, in order to open it, they had to use atomic lasers, which the technology came from America. So there was this first a very secret and tentative alliance between the Americans and the Romanians. And then you see this begin to emerge in 2003, with Romania and America becoming staunch allies, Romania becoming a part of NATO, and as you carry it forward into, into present time, um, Romania is surrounded by people who are uh, neutral or uh, against the United States. If, if memory serves, uh, didn't the United States just move their nuclear arsenal from Turkey to Romania? Uh, I don't know if, that, if that's exactly accurate, but they, they do have a big nuclear arsenal. I don't know if they move what they had in Turkey. It's quite possible because Turkey is turning cold towards the United States. Right. All right, Peter, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back and continue to delve into this time travel, science fiction or science fact. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. 
Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Peter Moon stays with us on the Time Travel Education Center, timetraveleducationcenter.com. Now, this chamber beneath the Romanian Sphinx that has this incredible technology, uh, did your colleague uh, Radu have any suggestion or any idea as to who may have put it there? Well, um, that's that was a, a very touchy subject for him. Um, it was a touchy subject in general, but it, it's <laughs> um, obviously was done by some uh, uh, history, you know, race that would amount to aliens, giants, something that certainly is from the extreme past. Um, so it's and, and there's even in one of the books. There's a series of um, four books that are a collaboration with Redu Cinemar, and then The White Bat is the fifth book in the series, which is completely by myself, which also kind of summarizes and gives perspective. But in the third book, Mystery of Egypt, um, he, he talks about... Um, What did you just ask me? I want to address the question. Yeah, who, does Radu Cinemar have a, yes. a theory as to who built well, this yes, chamber yes. and all the technology underneath the Romanian Sphinx? In the third book, they find a similar installation beneath the Giza Plateau in Egypt. And when Caesar goes to, to ask particular questions about, you know, how did this all come to be, it's blocked. You know, he's penetrating a time, that's actually a time chamber, where he can go back and look throughout anywhere in time he wants to. But he can't, um, and he can't travel. He can just see it, you know, go there, sort of like a mental projection into the past. He's not traveling as a physical body. And when he goes, he, when he, he asks certain questions or tries to penetrate certain areas, there's a censorship involved where the people that created it, you know, um, don't want him to know who they are. So they're sort of hiding like the Wizard of Oz, you know. Right. It, don't look, pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. So is, is this chamber, was it created as a time capsule? It was intended for us to discover so that we could learn about our past and our future? It would seem so, because uh, coincident um, with this discovery of this chamber, um, not, not the same year, but the, the next, the sequel, Transylvanian Moonrise, disc, um, deals with um, the unveiling of a Tibetan parchment, um, which is called a terma in, in the Tibetan tradition, whereby the, these were parchments left in certain parts of the world to be discovered at certain times in the future that would portend, you know, enlightenment and and so this this the discovery of this chamber comes in concert with a uh unveiling of of a uh, of a parchment uh from the, the tibetan tradition and of course this um particular see what we find in the person who set up this paranormal department department zero i said caesar brad became in charge of it but the person who set it up was a uh, doctor of medicine 
I don't know if he's a doctor of medicine. He was a doctor of certainly a parapsychology from China. And he was actually a, in, he was in disguise as a, as a doctor in China, but he was a, uh, a Tibetan Lama. He's called Ripa Sundi uh, in, in the book. So you have this mysterious Tibetan connection, uh, you know, because keep in mind, Romania was communist when all this right, stuff right. was initially set up. Um, so they had a affiliation with with uh, China. Well, that's that, just let me interject for a moment because that's an interesting connection. The um, the Tibetan monks, because uh, monks, Buddhist monks, have long. There's this legend surrounding uh, their their ability to bilocate, and uh, I'm just wondering if there might be a connection there. Well, there there is certainly, uh, you know. We don't have bilocation in in the book. We do have what's called a space translation, where in in the book Transylvanian Moonrise, uh, the Lama accompanies um, Radu with another very interesting and mysterious man uh, who's an alchemist named Eleanor, who is a bridge between the Lama and Radu. And he's a real person. And they go to Transylvania, where they actually affect a, a time translation to Tibet, where they go into a, a cave, and they meet this goddess, blue goddess, Mashande, and she gives them the parchment. And Radu's job is to is to see that it's published. Um, it's translated by the Lama, because it's in an archaic Tibetan script, and he has to work a bit to translate it himself, and then he, he, he gets it translated in, uh, to Radu through, through a, one of his assistants. And they then, uh, and then it, it's, tra- it's published in Romanian, okay. and then I, I, I translate it into, I have it you know, into English. Just because time is tight here, I, I do want to get to, now this, this chamber beneath the Romanian Sphinx, uh, is this connected with, or is it the same cave? I believe it's pronounced uh, Chioclovina Cave. Chioclovina Cave. Chioclovina uh, Cave. Yeah, you're close. Okay. Um, no, it's it's. Well, I, I do believe they're connected, um, only because of the inner Earth passageways that are extensive. Right. So it's it's just like saying you can connect Los Angeles or Philadelphia if you go on the highway. True. But this um, this past summer, you you visited yes. Chioclovina Cave. That's correct. And and um, you're saying that in the Chaklovina cave there is demonstrable evidence of a time reactor discharge. What do you mean by that? Well, this is what David Anderson told me. And he told me this in a uh, broadcast or a podcast, I should say, that was done in June of 2015, which is on the subscriber website now. Uh Basically, he, he surprised me by telling me it's the only thing I've got out of him about Romania. He said there was a, a real a discharge. He said, you'd be interested in this. And he was very surprised when I told him, well, I've been to that cave. I was just at that cave the previous year. And as he said, that sent his head spinning uh, because how, why did I end up there? And, and he, of course, he determined this through the exotic or rare minerals because of the extreme heat discharge. He said the only kind of uh, way those minerals would have formed in the way they did was through a time reactor discharge. Now, this is coincident with this book 
the fourth book in the series, The Secret Parchment, which talks about that general area being an even more sensitive and intriguing area than the chamber we've already been discussing. And when you were in Chuklovina, did yeah. you, and this was, was this, this was prior to you learning about this time reactor discharge there, did you notice anything unusual about uh, the, did you get a vibe or anything? Well, um, the ladies I was with saw blue lights, like blue orbs, and, and these orbs that you often see in, in this area. I mean, people shoot orbs all the time, uh, but these, these blue things will appear, um, and definitely it's, it's a beautiful energy because you're, you're way out there in nature. But what my, uh, my wife tells me, when she sees me in this general area, she says, I look much younger. Ah, interesting. I'm, you know, she says that about... A time dilation, perhaps. Uh, it, it, well, see, there's a lot of gold in this area. So when you have a lot of gold, gold facilitates superconsciousness, and okay. it makes you work better, it makes everybody work better. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of gold underneath this area. That's part of what the books are. So if, if the Chaklovina cave if there is evidence of a time reactor discharge, I mean, wh- connect the dots for me then. We just have a few moments. So what are we saying that at some point in Earth's past, Chiaclovina Cave was being used as some sort of um, a, a gateway or a portal for time travel? Or, or... Well, it's, it's a connection to what, what the Mayans would call the galactic center and the um, Hunab Ku, they call it. And it's they have a symbol for it. I just did a newsletter on it. Just finished it. Not yet published. But, um, yes, it's a connection to the Galactic Center. And a connection to... The Galactic Center has a connection to all the other Galactic Centers. Well, th- um, so, th- so these areas I- exist naturally? In other words, there wasn't an actual time travel device positioned there. These, these, are, these are portals that exist naturally on the er- in the Earth. Well, y- this is a specifically special one. Uh, in, in Transylvania, and it also connects to Europa. You see that NASA is now going to Europa, and this is part of the book. The planet, or the, the moon Europa of Jupiter, is on the, the cover of the book, The Secret Parchment. So you see these things um, at least being mimicked, the, the themes of the book being mimicked in, um, you know, reality, as, as we would say. All right, just have about a minute here, a minute and a half. Tell us a, a, about the new book, uh, The White Bat, The Alchemy of Writing. Well, this, this, this is a, summarizes so much in how I got involved in this, but it was the dream of a white bat. And then I would later learn when I, on my travels to Romania that the, somebody had seen a white bat, that the white bat was the, the mascot of this goddess, Mashandi. But I was getting a dream of a white bat, you know, years before I even got involved in time travel. So it it's, uh, gives a very... Uh, overview perspective, and I also discovered there's a whole species of white bats in Transylvania that zoology really knows nothing about, and the, the bats frequent this Chaklovina cave. I don't know that the white bats do, but certainly there are a tremendous amount of bats in that cave, which it's famous for. It's bat guano. Fascinating. It's almost as if perhaps, Peter, going out on a limb here, maybe your past is... F- you know, percolating up through your subconscious, uh, perhaps, you know, you, you're a time traveler. Maybe we're all time travelers. Well, the, yes, yes. And the past is the future. And the, it's all one continuous loop. So when we discover these artifacts of our ancestors 
it's really us. And, and the trick is to recognize this, this one loop called the fourth dimension. You have to think of it as a time loop with the beginning and the end. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of this program. Peter, I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope you'll come back. Sure. Happy to. Peter Moon, TimeTravelEducationCenter.com. My thanks to Albert Vinzel, Young Will Power, Jonathan Franz, all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in the shadows, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.